Welcome to Stacy on the Right with your host, Stacy Washington. Uh, and uh, gradually, I think, I think both sides have now reached the point where they're so frustrated and so fed up and so impatient for change. Uh, mm -hmm. that this could lead almost anywhere. It is extraordinarily divisive. I cannot remember a time. The anti-war movement in Vietnam, the, the civil rights movement, uh, you know, in the 60s and early 70s, both of those were much more civil in tone. Mm. Uh, even the anti-war movement was more civil in tone, but certainly the civil rights movement among the people who were protesting. Listen, I, I, I do think that the cultural issue is, is a fair point, that our culture does not, it has, has never been very, uh, you know, Hollywood culture has been never, never very sympathetic, for example, to the pro-life movement. It has, it's not very sympathetic to the Tea Party movement. Uh, and there are a lot of Americans who feel like they've been treated as second-class citizens. But I must tell you, we have never had a president who has lit the fire and put the country on boil more than this one. I think if, you know, the culture has been here for a long time. What has dr dramatically changed is the nature of our leadership. And the incivility in Washington. Now, incivility preceded Donald Trump to Washington. It was there long before he got there. The polarization and all the breakdown of norms uh, was there. But mm -hmm. it's accelerated, it's deepened, and it's become much more poisonous. I, you know, we're, we're beginning to see threats to the way we live with each other. We're beginning to see threats to the whole idea we hold of democracy, that we may have our disagreements, mm -hmm. but we basically have the same values. Oh, man. So that was on CNN. I thought that was a really interesting comment that he made that the incivility preceded Donald Trump. If you remember, it was President Obama who said, if they bring a knife to the gunfight, you bring a gun. If they bring a knife to the fight, you bring a gun. Uh, you know, his wife said, if they go low, we go high. President Obama said, you got to you got to shame him and name him. You can't let a crisis go to waste. I mean, he was very clear in how he felt about uh, his political opponents. And people would always say, well, he's just trying to illustrate a point. But when Donald Trump gets straight up and, and goes hardcore into the, the comments, then it's, well, he's practicing incivility. Mm, that dog won't hunt. You can't have it both ways. You, you're either fine with it or you're not. And if you're going to be fine with it, please just be fine with it. Don't, don't make it more than it really is. So We've got a bunch of topics for you. Welcome to the show here on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. Uh, we have Dr. Kenneth Barnes, chair at the Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary and author of Redeeming Capitalism. He's going to come on in the next segment. Right now, I want to talk about some breaking news story. Out of, two, two pieces here. First off, out of Buffalo, New York, a Canadian national convicted of felony sexual assault is among the 40 illegal aliens taken into custody last week during a four-day four enforcement operation that ended on June 21st. U.S. Immigrations and Customs Enforcement actually targeted at-large criminal aliens, illegal re-entrants, immigration fugitives, and other violators. The operation targeted public safety threats such as convicted criminal aliens and gang members and individuals who have violated the immigration laws of the United States, including those who have re-entered. And this is a big problem for us. We have such lax enforcement that people feel they're just like, oh, yeah, you can throw me out. I'll just come back. These uh, of the 40 who were arrested, the arrest took place in central, western and northern New York state. Almost 30 percent had criminal convictions or pending criminal charges. And among those arrested during the operation were a na Mexican national with multiple criminal convictions for inflicting corporal in injury on his spouse. 
three convictions for driving under the influence, three convictions for driving without a license, giving false information to a peace officer, and carrying a loaded firearm in a public space. A Salvadoran national with criminal convictions for theft, assault, and felony sexual assault, and other cases including individuals with convictions for serious offenses such as sexual assault, assault, DUI, firearms, possession, theft, neglect of a child, larceny, illegal reentry into the United States, contempt of court, and statutory rape. Seven of the individuals arrested during the enforcement action have been accepted for federal prosecution, for reentry after deportation, a felony punishable by up to 20 years in prison. Those who are not being criminally prosecuted will be processed for removal from the country, and individuals who have outstanding deportation orders or who have returned to the United States illegally after being deported are subject to immediate removal. Enforcement actions were conducted in accordance with routine daily target operations carried out by ICE fugitive operations teams, and they list off where the people were arrested, which counties in New York State. Now, the arrestees were 35 men and five women, and they were nationals from 13 countries, Brazil, Canada, Cuba, Dominican Republic, Guatemala, Jamaica, Malawi, Mexico, Nigeria, Pakistan, Poland, Somalia, and Latvia. Now, we've had some discussion uh, going on. It's been all over about the fact that a lot of judges are being told, you know, that we're, they're going to increase the number of judges at the border so they can try to handle the backlog. And I wonder why they don't do like a night court situation where they have the immigration courts open 24 hours a day. They stand up a bunch of courts down there and even maybe have a negotiation with the country of Mexico because the due process begins when they land their feet in America. But if our deportation courts were on the border of Mexico, but actually located within the national sovereignty of Mexico, then those deportation orders would be immediate. It would be immediate turnarounds. Instead of asking the Mexicans to pay for the wall, we should ask for permission to have our courts on Mexican soil so that we can take care of these issues expeditiously. The chances of that happening are pretty slim because they are apparently just about to elect or have just elected some socialist who will probably be the worst president they've had in the modern era down in Mexico. And it's going to be very difficult for uh, Donald Trump to, to make deals with this guy because he's completely antithetical to everything the president stands for. So it's interesting to see that going on. Now, this next topic, gird your loins if you haven't been triggered today. If you're the kind who gets triggered, this is your moment. You're about to be triggered. You haven't heard about this story because the press is actually suppressing this part of what the Pope said recently. Now, full disclosure, I'm not Catholic. I do have quite a few friends who practice Catholicism, but I'm not Catholic. But I do follow the uh, announcements made by the Pope, just like everyone else does. It's breaking news. And Pope Francis actually was being interviewed, speaking to an Italian family association. He had scripted remarks, and then he had some unscripted comments. And this happened on June 16th, which goes to show you what kind of just is a solid media blackout of this comment. So you got Pope Francis, and he's talking about, he, he talked about a couple of subjects. He started off by saying couples who screen for abnormalities in the womb are like using Nazi-type tactics to eliminate anyone who isn't perfect. And his quote is, last century, the whole world was scandalized by what the Nazis did to purify the race. Today, we do the same thing, but with white gloves. 
that comment received some media attention. The following media outlets covered the story, AP, ABC Online, NBC New York, CNN Chicago Tribune, Hartford Current, New York Times, Orlando Sentinel, St. Louis Post-Dispatch, Portland Press-Herald, South Florida Sun-Sentinel, and The Wall Street Journal, and The Washington Post. In the same spontaneous address, the Pope, Pope said only heterosexuals can form a family. Only heterosexuals can form a family. This is the quote. It is painful to say this today. People speak of varied families, various kinds of family. The family as man and woman in the image of God is the only one. That's what he said. With the exception of CNN and the Wall Street Journal, not one of the media outlets that covered the Pope's remarks on abortion had a word to say about his comment. In fact, if it wasn't for the foreign sources, led by the German media outlet Deutsche Press Agentur, most of us would not know of this admission by Pope Francis. Now, the Media Research Center is actually concerned about this, but not just because of the media bias and their blackout of his comment. The reason they're concerned about it is because the news media appears to be manipulating public opinion in the run-up to the World Meeting of Families, which is an international conference. This Vatican event will take place in Ireland August 22nd through 26th, and gay activists are desperately trying to redefine the family to include homosexual couples. Pope Francis has just thrown a monkey wrench into their agenda, which is why the media intentionally decided to censor the remarks. I mean, I find it, you know, when, when we're talking about Nazi-esque tactics and all of that, and we're kind of tossing around these really, really, they're specific terms. You don't use Nazi-esque left-wing media to describe people who support someone you don't like unless they're actually carting people off in cattle cars, trying to take over the entire country, practicing totalitarianism and genocide, and murdering people who are not of a very specific ethnic background. You just, it does not match. But this is Orwellian in its effectiveness. Most Americans do not know the Pope made that statement. Most Catholics do not know the Pope made that statement. So when you're talking about the Catholic faith, it's just like any other group of people, Christians in general have been found to soften and to moderate their stances on social issues when they're around people they know are easily triggered and emotionally driven and kind of violent in their opposition to things. I mean, who among us hasn't known that you're sitting with a group of people who are completely opposed to you politically and you've simply chosen not to speak up on a topic because you just don't feel like getting into a big cat fight with a bunch of people. I've done both. I, I remember being at a, 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 one of those bunko nights where you play the game bunko and it was my first time getting invited to it and I knew maybe five or six of the women there and everybody else was someone that I was meeting for the first time and a couple of them kind of knew that I was on school board before, but they weren't sure what I was doing afterwards. And when they realized that I was doing political commentary, they started bringing up things that I totally disagreed with. And at one point, I just let some comments fly by and I didn't say anything. And then they got to a subject where I was like, okay, geez. I mean, so I made a small comment and it turned into exactly what I thought, a big, it was like a wrestling match, a verbal wrestling match. Well, I know this. Well, do you know that? Well, do you know, you know, and, and all of that. And sometimes you just want a little bit of peace. But liberals know that. 
they know you just want a little bit of peace. So they want to best you in front of a bunch of different people because they're not really trying to change your mind. They're trying to change the minds of the observers. They want to co-opt other people into thinking the only reason she holds those beliefs is because she's bigoted. I don't care. She looks black to you, but she's not really because real black people believe this. And that's one way of invalidating the opinions of someone who's black, who happens to be conservative. You use the fact that they're black against them. And so with this issue, with the, the Catholic Pope saying that the only family that is recognized in the Bible that, it, that is biblical is the traditional family of a man and a woman coming together to begin a family, whether they have children or not, that's the only family that would be recognized. It is a huge blow to all of the strides that have been made around the world with gay marriage being the law of the land in so many westernized countries. Because if you call what you're doing with a same-sex couple a marriage and everyone else is calling it a marriage because they're forced to because it's the law of the land, but the faith that you practice refuses to acknowledge it, you've got a serious problem. And unlike other denominations that tend to be really swayed by whatever the, the cause du jour is or the moment, you know, it's, this is their moment, the pride moment and all that stuff. Catholicism, well, they not only have their own head honcho, they have their own city. They have their own councils. They really, they're completely autonomous. So if whole nations decide to flout Catholic doctrine, they still have the Vatican. They still have Vatican City. They still have their own army. And they still have the Pope. And so this is a difficult thing to overcome. And that's why the media is blacking it out. They're just like, you know what? We just want to acknowledge what he just said. We're not going to pay attention to that. We're not going to put it out there for other people to pay attention to it because then people will begin to question the legitimacy of a Supreme Court ruling here in the United States. If your Catholic faith comes before man's laws, then you're going to hear that and you're going to think, oh, so it doesn't matter what people rule. Just like it didn't matter when the Supreme Court ruled that black people weren't people and white people couldn't marry them. Just like when the Supreme Court ruled that black people weren't people and they were property did that mean we weren't still people in the image of God, that, that God, he made all of us? No, it didn't. The Supreme Court can be wrong. The Pope made a statement that was really important to Catholics around the world, and the media should put it out there because he said it the same way they've said other things, shared other things that he said, because he put it out there, and it's within Catholic doctrine. It's amazing to see them black it out. When we get back, we're going to have Dr. Kenneth Barnes. Stay right there. I'm Will Addison. And I'm Miki Addison of Aaron the Addisons on Urban Family Talk. Family is so important to everything. I mean, think about it. Right after God created Adam, he made family by creating Eve as his wife. We'd like to invite you to the Marriage, Family, and Life Conference this summer. We'll have a full slate of experts to help encourage and equip the body of Christ to fight for the restoration of the family. 
Our speakers include Ryan Bomberger of the Radiance Foundation, Dr. Clarence Schuler of Building Lasting Relationships, Abraham Hamilton III, Pastor Burt Harper and his wife Jan, and more. We'll even be there. The Marriage, Family, and Life Conference will be Friday and Saturday, August 17th and 18th at Hope Church in Tupelo, Mississippi. Come help us fight back against the enemy's direct attack on marriage and family. That's the Marriage, Family, and Life Conference put on by Urban Family Communications, a division of the American Family Association. You can learn more and register at urbanfamilytalk.com. This is Viewpoints with Kirby Anderson. Earlier this month, I talked about how many liberal progressives complained that Alan Dershowitz had changed. Actually, they are the ones who have changed. And in a recent op-ed, Dershowitz explains how the ACLU has abandoned its original mission. He should know since he served on the national board in the early years of his career. He writes that the director of the American Civil Liberties Union has now acknowledged what should have been obvious to everyone over the past several years. The ACLU is no longer a neutral defender of everyone's civil liberties. I'm not sure how neutral the ACLU has been in the past, but I'll concede the point to him. He says that they used a key test back in those days, which he called the shoe on the other foot test. In other words, would you vote the same way if the shoe were on the other foot? He concludes that now the ACLU wears only one shoe and it is on the left foot. Its color is blue. The organization now seems only interested in taking cases and supporting policies that promote progressive ideas and the Democratic Party. Some of us can remember when the ACLU would occasionally take a very controversial high-profile case in which they would defend the rights of neo-Nazis or Klan members to march. An article in The New Yorker says the ACLU is getting involved in elections and reinventing itself for the Trump era. Not only is it getting involved in election campaigns, but it also plans to spend $25 million on races and ballot initiatives. This is quite a change for a group that used to be called nonpartisan. Frankly, the ACLU has been a left-leaning organization since its founding, but at least it tried to occasionally play both sides of the civil liberties question. That is no longer the case. It is now injecting itself and its ideologies in American politics. I'm Kirby Anderson, and that's my point of view. Take Kirby and the Point of View team with you on the go with the Point of View app. Search for Point of View Radio at the Apple or Google Play stores. Welcome back to Spacey on the Right. Hey, welcome back to the program. Thank you for being here today. It's Tuesday super rainy here in Missouri. I know we need the rain, but it's like, really? But at least it's not super hot. Got to take the good with the bad, right? So it's my pleasure to welcome Dr. Kenneth Barnes, chair at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary, author of Redeeming Capitalism. Dr. Barnes, thank you for joining us today. Well, it's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Sure. So I think this is one of the most important subjects that we can tackle, especially in this day and this time the politically um, rancorous kind of language that permeates everything, where I remember when politics used to be something that you really only discussed it at certain times with certain people. And outside of those times, really, it was just business as usual. You just lived your life. And it has crept into everything. And so accordingly, some of the concepts that have been really integral to our country where you know, like capitalism, something that was seen as by all Americans as a universal good 
has now come under attack as something that's bad, the source of inequality, something that's evil. And your book, um, Redeeming Capitalism, is is you making the case for the fact that you find capitalism to be a biblical concept. Well, I, I wouldn't go so far as to say I find it to be a biblical concept. Um, what I say is that capitalism is a subject, not an object. Capitalism doesn't possess any hypostasis of its own, any traits of its own. It's not centrally organized. There is no single intelligence behind it. It's just a term we use to describe the cumulative effect of countless individual and corporate economic decisions. And if it's in a relatively lightly regulated environment, and uh, if it's sufficiently monetized, you get capitalism get what we call capitalism. So the good news is that, left to its own devices, it can be an exceptionally good uh, creator of wealth. The bad news is it doesn't have a moral compass of its own. So therefore, you know, we shouldn't be uncritical of capitalism. We have to ask the question, uh, what's good about capitalism, what's bad, uh, and what's ugly? And we want to eliminate the ugly and overcome the bad and, and celebrate and expand the good. So my, uh, my approach um, is, I, I think, a very fair and pragmatic approach. I'm a person who spent most of my life doing international business on a rather uh, high level all over the world. So I appreciate all the good of capitalism. But, you know, in the boardroom, sometimes I saw the, uh, the not-so-good side. So I understand why people get upset. I understand the effects of the global financial crisis. But I tell people if we don't redeem it, we're going to hate what we play to it. Well, and I, I like to point out that anytime you have human beings involved, you're going to see things that are innately good abused. And so we have to police ourselves. We have to police each other and police ourselves. So how, how does the Bible make the case for capitalism and liberty-oriented principles? Well, again, it's not a question of the Bible making the case for it. Uh, what I say is that if we look at the history of capitalism, um, if we look at different epics, we see that in the traditional capitalism observed by the likes of Adam Smith, it was undergirded by, uh, if you will, an Enlightenment interpretation of traditional Judeo-Christian ethics, and it worked very well. It worked not only well for individuals, but it also worked for the common good. It worked for all of society. And concepts like thrift um, would have been absolutely a normal part of the vocabulary. Uh, questions of fairness in, in terms of wages and things of that nature would have been normal. And it wouldn't have digressed to the point where it is today, where really the only driver, if you will, is to make as much money as possible. And we know that that will lead to behavior that is not conducive to uh, good political economy. I also look at the, the uh, economic ethic that was observed by Max Weber, the so-called Protestant work ethic. Uh, and that era also was undergirded by a very strong, almost puritanical form of, of Calvinist ethic that believed that hard work, um, free market, uh, conscience working together, thrift, would produce an economic system that worked for everybody. But unfortunately, as I'm sure you know, Stacey, um, you know, we live in a culture which is postmodern, and, and the capitalism we have is therefore postmodern. 
So in many ways, it's devoid of a moral compass, and it's resistant, if not impervious, to ethical constraints. So we need to find a way to bring ethics back into capitalism so that we aren't tempted to try to replace it with some kind of utopian uh, economic system which is doomed to fail. Okay, so can you talk about how Christians can impact that? Because there's obviously Christians are in the marketplace, Christians are in business, owning businesses, working for others, et cetera. And we have the opportunity to impact uh, the way capitalism is executed for good. How do we do that? Well, that is a great question. In the book, in the last two chapters, I, chapters, I talk about redeeming capitalism from the bottom up and redeeming capitalism from the top down. And, and most of us don't have the influence to uh, redeem it from the top down, but it's an important narrative that we need to start. But we can all redeem it from the bottom up just in terms of how we view things like the nature of work and things like virtue and why, even in a pluralistic society, uh, Christians can be shining examples of virtue in the workplace. If, if we do as the Apostle taught us, to, to treat our work as our worship, that's going to get people's attention. People are going to look at work as something much more important, much more fulfilling, uh, much more life-enhancing than just a means to a paycheck. And, and I believe that what the Bible clearly teaches us is that the purpose of any economic system uh, is not just individual enrichment, it's human flourishing. So it starts with our, our theology of work. Uh, it, also, it also comes down to how we view our relationship with each other. You know, how do, how do people who are in positions of authority at work view their employees, and how do employees uh, view their fellow workers and their, and their superiors? And I think, unfortunately, it's become very transactional, very contractual, uh, and the biblical model is, is one of mutuality, it's one of covenant, it's mutual interdependence, and it's relational. So those are the kinds of things that we as Christians can do uh, to start a long process of, of bringing virtue back into economics and into capitalism. Wow. So I, I'm, I know that God has a plan for everything that we do. He has a plan for uh, every aspect of our lives. We often don't plug into his plan. We try our own way. We try different, different ways of kind of fixing things, if you will. But God has a plan for our execution of capitalism. And there's, there's a specific way that we can go about it. And you kind of touched on it a little bit when you talked about a work ethic and, and, you know, being honorable in your work and doing it for the glory of God, working for God instead of seeing, you know, your boss as your ultimate employer. And those are important concepts. But even in a postmodern society, we can execute God's plan for capitalism? What, what is that? Well, uh, as I said, I, I think the, the first and foremost principle is that we see our economic system as the purpose of it is to, first of all, um, reflect the glory and the beauty of God in this creation. Uh, the imago Dei, as it's called theologically, the image of God which is in all of us. That's where human flourishing comes through but also in the Missio Dei, the mission of God, the mission of the Church, which is to bring redemption, to help us overcome the effects of sin. That's all redemption means, is that we overcome the effects of sin. So how we treat each other, um, how we uh, communicate with each other, you were talking about the political discourse. The political discourse in this country uh, is, is a very serious concern to me, because 
It, it, it seems as though we can't have uh, civil conversations with each other without resorting to tribalism and, and screaming at each other and, and, uh, and not appealing to the humanity in each of us. So uh, it's the same in economics. Uh, we, this, this notion that somehow um, if everyone only looks after themselves, everyone will benefit, ethical egoism it's called, it's just not a Christian concept. Uh, a Christian concept for how we should conduct ourselves in business and at work, uh, it's frankly that we love each other. And, and I tell people that the three virtues missing most from our, our, our economic system today are the virtues of faith, hope, and love. We've lost faith in God. We've lost faith in our institutions, even capitalism we've lost faith in. We've lost faith in each other. We've lost faith in the American dream. We need to bring faith back because faith breeds hope. Uh, and when people have hope, uh, then they're willing to put in the hours and do the things necessary to help with human flourishing. But it all starts with loving our neighbor as we love ourselves. That's the bottom line. And it has to happen in economics as well as any other sphere of life. Fantastic. Well, I will put the link to uh, the Amazon page for the book into the streams for everyone who's uh, paying attention on the different live streams on YouTube and Facebook, et cetera. And I encourage you, if you're listening terrestrially, please check out one of those streams on the Facebook page, perhaps, and you can click the link through and go over and check out the book. The title of the book is Redeeming Capitalism. Dr. Kenneth Barnes, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Stacey. God bless. God bless. Great to speak with you. Uh, so it's an interesting perspective. He's, he's not saying that, you know, God, God's a you know, big cheerleader of capitalism, but out of all the systems that we have, uh, to by which to do business with one another and to have a society, um, we really we're really doing pretty good with the capitalism. And so when we see corruption and we see things being done selfishly that that do not work, um, it it is incumbent upon us to find ways that we can glorify God and we can do things the right way, and then we can still have capitalism work well for us as a society. And so I think that's fantastic. Um, if you want to call in and join the show, I'd love to speak with you, 866-963-2037. We have a few more things to get to. I want to give you a little bit of a preview for tomorrow. We have Carmine Sabia Jr. He is a Christian conservative political pundit, radio host, and editor. He's going to join the program tomorrow. And then the day after, we have, well, yeah, we have Pastor John Hagee, senior pastor of Cornerstone Church. Uh, CEO of John Hagee Ministries, chairman of Christians United for Israel, Kufi. He's going to join the program. Um, and then on Friday, we have surprise guest. So we don't know who you're going to, we're not, we're not telling you. It's not that we don't know. We're not telling you who it is. Um, so you'll get to find out. Maybe I'll tell you on Thursday about that one. So now is a time where I'm going to tell you guys about this. It's, it's outside. It's in our yard. This huge, it's a huge patch. It's like maybe 18 inches by 24 inches of mushrooms. But from my kitchen window, I couldn't tell what it was because it's about 200 feet away from our, our kitchen window. And so I thought it was a deer. You know how when the deers are babies, they, they lie down kind of in a circle in a depression in your yard and the mom leaves them there and they basically sleep all day. They sleep all night and the mom just comes over and nurses them and then they stay there. They're basically hidden in plain view. 
we found a deer like that before. And so I thought that's what it was, but I thought it was kind of odd because I could see it from the window. And usually you can't see it from a distance because they're hidden. Well, in this case, I kind of felt like because it hadn't moved, I saw it there the second day and I didn't feel like I wanted to go out there and see what it was because what if it was dead? You know, because we've had that happen where another wild animal has killed a deer on our property and we've had to call the town to come out and they send out people to come and get the, the carcass. So I didn't want to go out there and be face to face with an animal that had been, you know, had met an untimely death. So I told my husband about it. I said, hey, there's an animal by the stump in our yard and it's, it's kind of far off, but I can see it from here and it's big. And, you know, I, at that point I didn't have an idea of how, like how many inches, but I kind of was guesstimating. I was like, it's, it's good size. I think it's a dead deer. So my husband, of course, he immediately, you know, goes right out there. He takes a look. He comes back in. He's like, it's not a deer. It's a patch of mushrooms. And as soon as he said it, something like, I don't know what it was, but it rose up within me and I got grossed out. Now, I like mushrooms. I like to cook them. I like to eat them. But this grossed me out because it was so big. And so then he started describing it like, he said, it looks like, the back of a dinosaur, but it's mushrooms. And it's, you know, it's like a lot of them. It's more than one mushroom, but it's a big, it's a big mushroom plant and it's growing and it's getting, and and it's out there. And so then after he told me what it was and I felt that kind of revulsion and I really didn't know why I felt revolted, but I was just like, what's, this is so gross. Then every time I go over to the kitchen sink to wash dishes or to put my plate, you know, in the dishwasher, I glance out there and I see it and it would make me feel like, you know, like I was choking, like I was just so grossed out by it. So today he said he went back out there and it was bigger than before. He said, it's like 18 inches by 24 inches. And it looks like it's growing pretty fast. I'm like, I'm so grossed out by this. So I actually told him, I, I know this is irrational. It's completely ridiculous, but I actually feel like I can't go out there and take a look at it. And I don't have phobias. I'm not unnaturally afraid of heights or small places or big places. I don't have any of that stuff going on. But this patch of mushrooms has actually grossed me out to the point where I can't go out there and look at it. So just a little while ago, before the show started, my husband gets text message. He's like, look out the window. And I looked out there and it was gone. He went out there and hacked it up like with something and removed it so I can't see it from the window anymore. That's marriage, you guys. That's love. When you have an irrational fear of a patch of mushrooms... And it's grossing you out and you're kind of gagging every time you look out the window and your husband goes out and removes it because he thinks you're crazy, but he just wants to help you out. (laughs) So that just happened. Anyway, we get back. We're going to talk about the uh, suspension of a staffer for a Democrat. The staffer called out uh, a horrible expletive to President Trump on Capitol Hill, and they have responded by revoking her access to Capitol Hill and uh, suspending her for two weeks. We'll talk about that and we'll take your calls. 866-963-2037. This is Uncommon Moments. Here's former Super Bowl winning NFL coach, Tony Dungy and his wife, Lauren, sharing from their book, Uncommon Marriage. In the mid-1990s, I started doubting that I'd ever get a head coaching position. 
Minnesota Vikings chaplain Tom Lamphere counseled me just to keep my eyes on Christ and be the best assistant coach I could. He told me to follow the Lord's guidance. As Tony went into the 1995 season, he tried not to focus on his disappointment over two head coaching opportunities he didn't get. Instead, he got back to work with the goal of helping his team get to the Super Bowl. Letdowns like these are why God gives us good wives. I needed Lauren to tell me that she loved me and believed in me no matter what. Try to encourage your spouse today. Tony and Lauren Dungy, authors of Uncommon Marriage, learning about lasting love and overcoming life's obstacles together. Discover more at CoachDungy.com. My name's Shane. Abusing alcohol and drugs made me so hopeless I wanted to end my life. Thankfully, Teen Challenge showed me how to start my life all over again without drugs. If you know an adult or teenager who's struggling with a chemical addiction, Teen Challenge can help. Call us today at 417-581-2181 or reach us online at teenchallengeusa.com. This is Urban Family Talk. Coming next week on The Dwelling Place. Pastor Al Pittman continues to walk us through the Bible line by line and verse by verse to let God show us just how timeless His truth is. That's next week on The Dwelling Place. Life is never picture perfect. Human beings come in all different shapes, sizes, colors, and abilities. No matter how much we plan, no matter how much we think we're prepared, the unplanned happens all the time. It's how we respond to the unexpected that shows our true humanity. But many do not see the value of every human life. Too many are willing to discard those who don't fit the picture of perfection. Abortion destroys the chance to love and to be loved. We never know what will fill the frames of our lives or how empty those frames can be when we allow exceptions. Every life is a gift. Learn more at www.radiance.life. This is Stacy on the Right on Urban Family Talk. WMUR has confirmed that an intern for Senator Maggie Hassan's office shouted an expletive at President Trump as he arrived at the U.S. Capitol last week. He was meeting with Republican lawmakers on the immigration issue. A spokesman for Senator Hassan tells WMUR intern Caitlin Marriott has been suspended for a week. Her congressional intern ID badge has also been revoked, which restricts her access to the Capitol. The spokesman called it a breach of office policies regarding respectful and appropriate conduct. <laughs> ah, so most of the people who um, heard her make that comment, you kind of fall into two categories. You're either really repulsed by the comment that she made, or you feel like, you know what, this is, this is what should be done. We should definitely be doing these kinds of things and saying these kinds of things. And I think that it's absolutely ludicrous that she felt empowered to do that. 
And I think it's good that Maggie Hassan's office has distanced themselves from that kind of behavior. Remember, if it's good to yell that at Donald Trump, then it might be good to yell that at Maggie Hassan. And she has to be thinking this is not the kind of language and the kind of behavior that I want from my interns and my staffers. And so, it, you know, we've we've got to we've got to have some standards. We have to have some standards. Got to have them. Got to. So I'm going to go to the Facebook live stream because there's some really important advice that's being shared there, which is Daryl says the mushroom patch has to be sprayed to stop it from coming back. Oh, my gosh. I am so grossed out right now. What is going on that I can't stand the idea of this mushroom patch that's out there? My husband said it doesn't look like mushrooms um, that we would eat, but it's huge. It's enormous, I'm telling you. And so he he cut it down and then and, and it's and it's back. So I encourage you guys to go over to NRITV.com and check out after the show, check out my hit on Grant Stinchfield this morning. We were talking about Maxine Waters and the fact that uh, so Representative Biggs, and I kept this for the show because I thought this was really interesting. This was one of the breaking news stories on the Daily Caller this morning. Uh, it's Arizona Representative Andy Biggs. He has five co-sponsors, and he's presented a bill to censure Maxine Waters for her comments and then to uh, demand her retirement, that she resign from her seat. Um, she says that God is on the side of people who run those individuals who work in the Trump administration out of the public eye. In other words, if you're running people out of the public, if you see someone who works in Trump administration or is a Trump supporter, someone with a Trump bumper sticker, and you harass them and you mob them down and they get in their car and their drive away before they can get gas, or if they leave the restaurant before they can eat, or if they're forced out of the movie theater and chased down the street like Pam Biondi, or if they're harassed and harangued and, and forced to go home without eating dinner the way Sarah Huckabee Sanders and her husband were, then God is on your side. That is not true. Psalm 11.5 says God is on the side. Uh, actually, let me read to you directly. I, I had this this morning and I was just like, you, you can't. You can't say that, Maxine Waters. Um, you cannot say that God is on the side of people who are doing violence. Psalm 11.5 says the Lord examines the righteous, but the wicked, those who love violence, he hates with a passion. So if you love violence, if you love um, doing verbal violence to people or, or physical violence, or if you are the kind of person you want to make a point to someone like that in a violent manner, God hates that. He, it says the Lord hates that with a passion. So imagine passion in the form of a holy God hating something that we're engaging in. That's not going to be allowed to continue on for long. So don't be fooled by what the Democrats are peddling and what media types are peddling and what Maxine Waters is peddling. Anyone can take the word of God and twist it to suit their own aims. But if you are unsure about what they're saying, or if it doesn't sound right, or it's not passing the smell test for you, or if it looks like a huge patch of frightening mushrooms, go straight to the word of God and find out what it says. There are more verses that cover this subject, but specifically, I feel like Psalm 11.5 is the most perfect uh, rebuttal to Maxine Waters' comment that God is on the side of people driving Trump officials from restaurants and public places. Psalm 11.5, the Lord examines the righteous, but the wicked, those who love violence, he hates with a passion. All right, I'll take it. Um, and, and this is all, it's on us. We control our own actions. We decide how we're going to behave. And so when we know we disagree with someone on something, sometimes that can be the roughest part. Do you, do you, do you see what I'm saying? 
you may love someone. I mean, you just love them dearly, but you know you disagree on a certain point. And and at that moment, and every time you encounter that person, you have to make a decision. If your love for that person supersedes the views that you do not share. And if you decide, you know, I just can't spend time around this person anymore because I know what their views are. That's a personal decision that you're making. But remember where that puts the love for that person on the scale of importance. That means their political views are more important to you than their personality, than who they are as a person. And I've said it before. I'll say it again. One of the most, it's the saddest part about doing this job is that because I'm doing this job, it means certain people feel like there's just no room for any friendship that's not, you have to be basically same political views as myself, we can't, or we can't be friends. And that's not true. That is not true. But it also indicates that the friendship was below those political beliefs in the first place. The only reason the friendship was allowed to flourish is because the knowledge of what the views were There was no knowledge. They either didn't know or they hadn't been informed or it hadn't come up. And so it was no big deal. But now that the views are known, supersedes. And this is, it's not just with friends. It's with family also. So that's the saddest part about doing this job. It's rewarding. I'm not changing anything. I'm not complaining, but it is a part of what goes on. And we're seeing that, you know, the parting of the ways where people have been unfriending each other on Facebook for, for uh, at least as long as Facebook has existed. But more recently, it's become much more pronounced where people are gleaning out anyone who disagrees with them on, on any major subjects. They, you just can't be friends with them on Facebook anymore, which translates into real life, actually. People that would be fine with getting together and doing this and that, you know, spending time together. Now, all the discussions are political. Now it's, you know, you can't go anywhere without people talking about politics. It used to be in the grocery store. You don't dare discuss politics. You would be discussing whether quality of the produce on offer, prices, how slow or fast the cashier is, how long you've been shopping at that location, any kids that you had with you, their ages, sports they play, et cetera. There was just so much small talk to engage in. Now there's just, well, Donald Trump is Hitler. And then, and I've, I've been in line before and heard people talking like that. Well, you know, that's just the thing. I can't stand those Trump supporters. And I, I was at the airport and a lady was having that conversation. And I just turned around and looked at her and she looked at me and gave a nod like, I know you understand what I'm coming from. And I just turned around. I thought, oh, thank God I have some coffee here. And I am totally not getting involved in that conversation. Which also, I don't know if you guys saw the big story of, uh, They had a flight to Minneapolis where someone had some kind, it was a Spirit Airlines flight. You can find it on Drudge. It's a story on Drudge today. Uh, There was someone on the plane who had a medical emergency and they had to divert from Minneapolis to another airport. And when they landed, a, I guess, combat veteran who's a woman completely went berserk and had a PTSD episode and had to be removed from the plane. And that video went viral. And then some other couple, the, the wife, or the husband got angry at what was being said about the the person who had the PTSD episode and they had to be removed from the plane. Emotions are running really high and it's, it's kind of crazy to watch. Um, Oh yay! Let's talk to a caller. We have Michael from Texas. Thanks for calling into the show today. Uh, Thank you. Thanks for having me. Sure. What's your comment? Uh, Can you hear me? Yes. I can hear you now. 
Oh, yes. I was just trying to get your uh, stance on the uh, the actual presidency at hand, because I don't know where you stand on the uh, on the actual presidency. Like, do you think he's, uh, like, doing good or doing bad? Because, I mean, I only can speak on other people's opinions because I'm not really too involved in it. But a lot of people have been saying, hey, man, you should listen, you should go, because honestly, I don't get into politics as much. Because I come from a background of families who came to this country legally and busted their butt to become U.S. citizens, and I'm a product of, of a father who's from Pakistan, which is probably the worst country you could ever live in. And keep in mind, now, that country is pretty bad to live in when it comes down to women's rights, gays, etc. And everyone's saying that, oh, yeah, you know, Trump's this, Trump's that, and I'm like, okay, well, what about the other people who work and who don't get into politics, who just try to strive to stay away from that? And people say, oh, yeah, but you're already in politics. How? Oh, you work, you get taxed, and well, that's life, man. I mean, if he's the president, he's the president. So my question is to you is that what, are your, what is your stance on the actual president at hand? Like, do you think he's going to win in 2020, or he's just, you know, getting lucky as he goes? <laughs> okay. Thank you so much for calling and uh congratulations on <laughs> that's a good question. <laughs> you got you you've leveled a really good question. Um so how do I feel like the president is doing? Well, I have been pretty open in my um opposition to some of the modes of communication of President Trump. He has on more than one occasion I felt like he's just he, he's too blunt for his own good and it really works against him. Not that what he said is, you know, just it's just so crazy. It's not the way I would put it. And it's not typical for a politician, which he isn't. And it really gives ammunition to his detractors. That being said, uh, the tax reform bill, the reduction in regulation, 22 regulations reduced for every one new uh, regulation that was implemented, um, his revamping of the Environmental Protection Agency's actions across the country and the Department of the Interior and uh, all of the agencies that take care of our federal lands, and specifically his work on reducing illegal immigration. I feel like those are huge wins for the administration. And I, I also think he's gone above and beyond to demonstrate how much he wants to help every community, and that is seen across the country, just an amazing economy we're experiencing and a boom in business activity that is unprecedented. And really, that's a benefit to Americans because you don't have to support Donald Trump. You don't even have to support conservative ideals or the Republican Party platform to benefit from a president who wants to reduce regulations and reduce business tax that unleashes the economy and results in more jobs than there are people who are looking. So to me, I think he's doing a good job. As far as 2020 is concerned, if he's not able to get Congress to come on board with him to do something about uh, the Affordable Care Act and the immigration crisis at the southern border, he is going to have trouble getting reelected in 2020, not because Trump supporters won't turn out for him, but because he needs some independents who feel compelled to vote for him because he's delivered on promises. And uh, he, he has. He said he would bring back steel jobs. He said he would bring back manufacturing jobs. These are jobs that President Obama said could not be brought back. They are coming back right here on American soil. And it's good news for American workers and for small towns that were completely destroyed by these uh, companies leaving and, and offshoring. So I think he's satisfied a lot of the, the initial, you know, hey, what can he do in the first year, first year and a half, et cetera. 
Um, he has a long way to go and he's fighting an uphill battle. I much rather see a second term for President Trump than any Democrat because he's pro-life and he's for sec- securing the border. And those are my top two issues. Uh, well, top two. The second is tied with obviously the Second Amendment. I'm a Second Amendment supporter. And I, I really believe that Donald Trump has those three. We, we There's no space between us on those three issues. On other things, um, you know, some of the dealings on the tariffs, I know I know what he's going for. I'm hoping that it's going to work out well uh, and it doesn't undermine the progress that's been made on the business side with the, the business tax reduction. And I think the personal side for individuals, the tax reduction was not nearly enough. It, it's I could barely call that a nibble for what was what was reduced. But the business side has kind of made up for that. Um, so I would say it's largely been successful, but it's just really tough because he doesn't have uh, the party support that he would if he were a traditional candidate, which isn't saying much because a traditional candidate on the Republican side, such as a John McCain, a Mitt Romney, um, a Jeb Bush, wouldn't even be trying to do any of this stuff, wouldn't have gotten the tax reform done, wouldn't have reduced regulations, wouldn't be working so hard at securing the border. And so they would have the support of the party, but nothing much would be getting done. So we've been there. We've done that. We've tried that. We have the T-shirt. And we've burned our T-shirts and we're ready to have something different. And that's what we have with Donald Trump. So I think it's pretty successful. Um, we just have to keep praying for him as, as I did President Obama. Got to keep praying for those who are placed in authority over you because the Bible says that God turns the head of your leader whithersoever way you would have it to go. I'd rather God be the one directing Donald Trump's path. That's my hope and my prayer. So great show today. Thank you guys for being here and I'll be back with you tomorrow. Hopefully it'll be a sunny day and the mushroom patch will not be back. Pray for me y'all. This is my first ever experience with this and it's crazy pants. All right. Be blessed. Talk to you tomorrow. The views and opinions expressed in this broadcast do not necessarily reflect those of Urban Family Talk, Urban Family Communications, or American Family Association.